welcome to Two Lips and One Mic. I'm Anna. And I'm Pushy. So, Pushy, we've had a lot of things that have happened over the last few weeks. I know. What's been news with you? Um, you know, I feel like we are more or less always leading parallel lives. <laughs> All right, let's just make our announcement in three, two, one. We, we resign. <laughs> Oh my god. Yes. So um, I think your news is slightly more exciting than mine because it's more imminent than mine. Also, we didn't quit to d- become like full-time podcasters or, <laughs> or entrepreneurs or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, we don't have enough slash any sponsors to justify being able to do this as a full-time gig. Um, but yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I put in my resignation, um, which will be effective as of the end of this year. And... That is a very long notice period, but I kind of did it as a way of just keeping myself accountable and making sure that I actually follow through and quit my job. It really goes to show how much of a commodity you are, though, that you <laughs> can put your notice like six months ahead of time and not be worried that they'll replace you in the interim. Yeah, that's true, actually. Like, seriously, it's probably not the most... Um, Career advice that we'd give to anyone else who's listening. I probably should, like, cross my toes and fingers and make sure that I haven't pissed off (laughs) my employer too much. But I also feel like I've more or less been speaking about quitting for as long as I can remember. So it hasn't really come out of the blue to anyone. And I think we need to do, like, a whole episode about, like, career fails on my part. Yeah. And, like, key learnings that we've taken from that and the fact that quitting isn't, contrary to popular opinion, career suicide. (laughs) Not (laughs) quoting anyone in particular. No. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because when I was going through a very, my difficult process of resigning from my job, I had repeatedly said to my manager and also to my execs that, um, it feels like I'm committing career suicide, Mm. but, and I don't know if they were lying, but all along they were like saying, well, no, it's not. It's just making particular decisions that are right for you at that time. Yeah. I mean, and especially for you, you've kind of been there and done that and now you're on the other side of it. So I feel like when you've been through the worst of it, Mm. then going through it again is really not as big a deal as it is the first time. I know. I've quit my job and been unemployed. Yeah, exactly. Like, by choice. So, and that's also (laughs) kind of been reassuring for me too because I am more or less quitting with the deliberate view that I actually won't have another job to go to. Mm. Like, I'm actually taking out the time to figure out what it is that I want to do, which is an incredible privilege that, like, my parents would not have been able or willing to do even if they wanted to. So... I feel like if I've got the privilege to do it, why not actually do it? Exactly. And I've actually got a few colleagues who are quitting around sort of the same time to do exactly the same thing. Mm. So, and I just feel like it's one of those things you can capitalize on in terms of being a millennial in Mm. our generation that we're flighty and we don't commit to things. One of the (laughs) benefits is that we can quit and just blame it on our generation. (laughs) I had to go skiing in Aspen or had to go to Europe, like, you know. And <laughs> Do my own eat, pray, love. <laughs> exactly. And it's quite widely accepted as, like, a fine thing. Yeah. In fact, I think it makes you edgier or sexier when you're going in for interviews and they're like, oh, what's this gap? And you can say, I did X, Y, Z. Yeah. Because most of the time you do something interesting. It's not as if you're going to sit on your ass and do nothing because, like you said, we're quite privileged. We mm. have disposable income mm. at this stage in our careers anyway. Um, 
it's not as if we're we're grads, which I think would be a different situation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thought of volunteering myself for unemployment as, as a, a grad, grad is unthinkable. Although having said that, I actually did that as well. I know. <laughs> well, you did it because you were actively looking for work. But That's I remember true. how despairing and depressing that was. Yeah. And yeah. so I don't want to gloss over that period of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm really conscious about that too. Like I said, I know that I am one of a few people that can sort of afford to take this time and energy out to figure out exactly what I want. So yeah, I'm both excited and terrified about it. On to the topic of my work, (laughs) relevant to my work, but um, so a bit uncharacteristic for us, but um, we wanted to talk about the effect of the Banjeri and Comcare case that was heard in the High Court of Australia earlier last week. Mm -hmm. And so this is a case that I've been following with interest as a public servant Mm. because essentially it involved a person um, under the Twitter handle Lali Girl who um, was a former employee of the Department of Immigration and she made a number of um, tweets that she said were anonymous um, about that were highly critical of her department, highly critical of her minister in relation to their detention um, policies and other immigration policies um, in the early 2000s, in the mid 2000s. And so the High Court um, heard this case and essentially ruled that there was no implied freedom of communicate political communication that would enable her to be protected and in essence would mean that she was entitled to compensation under the Compensation Act. Mm. And the reason why that's such a snoozy sort of headline is because that was what the case was. It's mm. a really complex case and despite what has been reported in the media as saying, oh, it's silencing public servants, it's removing our rights, blah, blah, blah. It's actually a very... Um, she firstly she pled a very narrow area um, in her appeal from the AAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, and um, secondly, the implied freedom of political communication is a very complex area of um, constitutional law. So mm-hmm. I'm not going <laughs> to purport to have any knowledge about it, but my rudimentary knowledge of it is <laughs> that it is not a personal right; it's a right that's looked at in um, in generality, so it's not mm. like we have that right personally. Um, I think one of the big cases we studied in law school was the Vicky Roach case, which did talk about um, the ability to participate in political life as a prisoner and be able to vote. And in that case, it was found that she did because of this implied uh, freedom of political communication. But other than that, it's very it exists in a very narrow. Mm. So we're not in America is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I was just going to say on that point, I think part of the misunderstanding that um, involves this implied right of um, political communication is the fact that people often equate it with the idea of free speech and the Bill of Rights in the States. And, yeah, it's not that. It's not a personal right. It's something that's supposed to act as a restraint on executive power so government power that's right um i'm but, looking at your headline here so read that headline <laughs> yeah so um this is a abc news headline about the case and it reads public servant loses free speech high court case over tweets criticizing government policies okay so that's misleading it is misleading um because yeah we do not have this enshrined right 
to freedom of speech, mm. which people find to be a bit of a misnomer given that we live in yeah. a Western democratic system. But we don't have a Bill of Rights. We Our don't. constitution is very, very narrow. Like if anyone mm. – and if you're not a law student, I don't know why you bother reading the Australian mm. constitution, but it's so – narrowly drafted and really is a product of its time it was not intended mm. it was purely to um as a product of federalism you know trying to separate out the powers between the federal and the states mm. and so it doesn't really do any more than that um but what's interesting is that the israel Folau case is going to be heard in the fair work commission um not on the same terms i don't think but it is going to be like broadly speaking a question about um, you know, in inverted commas, free speech mm-hmm. and his ability to um, freely communicate his, um, you know, religious beliefs in those tweets. I think broadly speaking, both of these cases have a really interesting um, impact on what we can say and do as employees, especially as public servants. Um, so for me, I'm a public servant and um, I try to be quite careful about what I broadcast in like this podcast and in other things. And I've, I've gotten into trouble once for publishing something in the age without seeking the consent of my employer. Um, and so it is something that I'm concerned about that these values and stuff like that, they do have sort of an effect of silencing because, mm. you know, I'm never going to write anything again mm. while I'm still working in the public service for fear that I'll lose my job. Well, um, the respondent in this high court appeal, um, so the employee, Banerjee, her lawyer more or less made comments to that effect that this does have the effect of self-censoring public servants Mm. even further. And it just seems to be a really outdated view of what people in government actually do and say. Like, I mean... I think we've had this discussion before where there seems to be this idea that public servants more or less operate like robots. They don't have any views or any opinions when, in fact, the contrary is true. The fact that they actually participate in the public service can be almost more indicative of the fact that they have an interest in public policy and in politics. I agree. And it's also sort of misleading to say to the public that public servants are absolutely apolitical because... Mm having worked in the public service, behind the scenes, you know where everyone sits Mm -hmm. on major political issues. I think the thing is you never let those views affect the way that you carry out your duties as a public servant. Mm. And I think in her case, um, without knowing all of the ins and outs of the facts, it seems like she was still carrying out her job. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, So it's kind of like that distinction that, we draw between being independent and being impartial. Like nobody is completely independent, right? right? Everyone comes to life with their own sort of personal experiences and those personal experiences generally shape their personal views. But just because someone holds particular views doesn't mean that those views are then going to translate or affect their ability to actually do their job. Exactly. So, but it's perception, like you would probably recall from. But I suppose one of the other really interesting tidbits about this case is the fact that she was publishing these tweets in an anonymous capacity and she was, as far as we know, uh, tweeting things that weren't confidential. No, it was all in the – and I think that's what's alarming for me and probably for you as well, but you're not – 
you have I'm not currently in the public service, but, but previously I have been, yeah. And um, because I only ever write or talk about things that are publicly known, like mm. I don't ever talk about confidential information or privileged information, obviously, and things like that. It's just whatever's in the media, like most of our podcasts, um, media articles, except for this, which is mm. the judgment itself. But um, that's interesting because the guidelines, and this is what I take issue with, and I'm going to do a bit further research to see how far or how aligned the APS guidelines are with, say, the VPS guidelines. But essentially um, the Australian Public Service Commission, Secular Guidelines, states that as a rule of thumb, irrespective of the forum, anyone who posts material online should make an assumption that at some point their identity and the nature of their employment will be revealed. Yeah, that sounds really far-reaching to me. Yeah, so reading all that together, it is essentially saying that really you shouldn't be commenting really on public issues or public interest government yeah. type whether or not issues. you're operating in a personal capacity or a professional capacity is more or less besides the point. Mm. You should just assume that people will know. That people will know. It's a correct assumption, though. I mean, when I wrote my article and... Radio NZ wanted to interview me. <laughs> they must have Googled me and then found <coughs> me through LinkedIn mm. um, and then called my employer <laughs> through that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it is true. Like, whatever you say is essentially on the public record. Mm. Um, and I already kind of self-censor in a sense, but probably not enough self-censoring. But, you know, I act as if every email is FOIable, every IM is mm. FOIable, that someone will read it later on in some tribunal. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. It makes you very accountable, that's for sure. Yeah, it's a very legalese approach <laughs> to I know, things. But I think that's the time and this judgment, I think, I'm not sure whether or not it's because it was a conservative bench but or the way that the appeal was framed was so narrow mm. that, you know, it, it is what it is. But it, it re- read to me as a very conservative reading of, mm. all of, of everything and, like, not a radical high court bench. Mm. And so, like, it would have been good to have Kirby on the bench. Oh, God, yeah. There'd be a surefire dissent. And you know what? This is a surefire argument for his um, position that there maybe should be a Bill of Rights so that we have these rights actually enshrined in some way. Well, it would make it easier when we're talking about these types of cases because, yeah, like you said, if we – don't have that bill of rights. We don't have that personal protection. It's a mm. it's a general protection, and so I am concerned about what it means for us going forward as public servant, and well, for me anyway, as a public servant. So, you know, I don't know what I can and can't say. I guess the one thing that came out of that was that the biggest consequence is you lose your job, mm. which is pretty serious for someone like Ben Jerry, who um, you know has been unemployed since and been on work cover. Well. Com- Comcover, Comcare, whatever it is, um, the Commonwealth equivalent, and she hasn't been able to work. Mm. And so it's had a very uh, significant effect on her life. Um, whereas for me, like my tweets and my podcasts may mean I just like I'm young enough to bounce back into the workforce. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I just I wonder what that means for the future of public servants and what we can and can't say. Yeah, I mean, from a personal perspective, I think this decision is definitely going to impact on my own decision making when it comes to future job opportunities. Um, I'm not discounting working in the public service in the future, but I'm definitely going to be a lot more selective about the departments that I would be able and willing to work for. I think if you work for a department where you're very much reportable to a minister, mm. it is a lot more 
uh, clamped down on. Yeah. Whereas, for example, when I was working at Legal Aid, um, much of the work that we do at Legal Aid is about law reform and advocacy. So that kind of plays to my strengths. So I think I would have to, yeah, restrict myself to kind of working in those types of environments. Well, even when I was working for the police, like, um, I don't think there was that much clamp on about Mm. what was said and done. Mm. Um, As long as it's not obviously state secrets and confidential material, but Mm. if you're just reporting on, and I think it was easier when I was working there because my areas of interest are like education and that type of thing. And so that doesn't directly affect my minister, the police Mm. minister, um, or the chief commissioner. They are things that you can comment on. And I think my executive was trying to say that to me, which is that you can still comment on things as long as it's kind of got nothing to do with your department. Yeah. But that's difficult for someone like me who I only work in places that are like passion or interest to Mm. me. And so it's like essentially gagging me from saying anything that I want to say. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, that takes us to our next point, um, which I'm going to uphold my BPS values and say not very much. <laughs> Are you currently expected to conform to your VPS values, given that you're in between jobs in the VPS? Well, I'm going to another VPS. <laughs> okay, so better to err on the side of caution. I'll self-censor myself. <laughs> um, so the next thing that we wanted to talk about was this ABC News investigation on figures that were recently released by the My School website, which more or less drew attention to the glaring disparity um, as to government funding between government, public, oh, sorry, government slash public, um, private and independent schools. Mm. Um, so it was a very thorough article and it's invited a lot of commentary after the fact um but what were your initial views (laughs) I actually didn't read it initially Mm. I only read it last night um to prepare for this and what was the reason for not reading it um because I knew it was gonna really piss me off Mm -hmm. because um it's something I've been saying all along and for a really long time that in order for public schools to even be able to you know engage in this competition um, you know, getting the top scores on my school, whatever it is, um, you need proper basic resourcing. Mm. And I think this was really evident here, which was um, we had some schools, some primary schools that were saying every year they'd do a stock take and see what carpet needed to be repaired. Mm. And then you flip that to, I think, the top performing school um, having – I don't know how many millions of dollars it was to build some new building. Well, maybe it would be helpful if I share some of these, like, disgusting statistics. So, first of all, um, the ABC News investigation related to 8,500 schools in Australia. So, we've got a big sample size there. And it essentially discloses their average yearly income between the years 2013 and 2017. So, it's a really comprehensive and Sarah investigation, but just some of these stats. So this is the one that I can still recall after reading the article. Is it the purple school? Uh, no, no. So it's not specific to any one school. Oh. It's just a general um, commentary on um, the status of funding. But it says here, 
Australia's four richest schools spent more on new facilities and renovations than the poorest 1,800 schools combined. Yeah, look, it's those types of statistics that I was like, doesn't surprise me, but also I don't need to yeah, see it. <laughs> I mean, and when we're talking about the four richest schools, we're talking about Wesley College, Halebury College, Caulfield Grammar and Knox Grammar. Wow, and three of those are Victorian. Yeah, interesting, right? I would have thought that the majority of them would have been in Sydney. Yeah. Um, And it says here they spent a total of $402 million while teaching fewer than 13,000 students, whereas the poorest 1,800 schools that we referenced earlier spent less than $370 million and teach over 107,000 students. Like, the numbers are just so glaring that I actually can't even digest them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I think one of the examples that was pulled out was saying that amongst 500 students, they were sharing 10 toilets at a, a government school. Like, what do you think that says about the Australian education system well, for there to be that disparity. The, the disparity is well known. Um, I, you know, I'm all for parent choice. If you want to choose to send your kids there and mm. pay tens of thousands of dollars, that's fine. That's your choice. But I don't think my taxpayer dollars should be subsidising mm. that when we can't even get basics at other schools that are open to every student. Mm-hmm. So having worked in this sector and knowing the uh, legal entitlements quite well. Every child is entitled to attend their designated government school. Mm-hmm. That's an entitlement enshrined in law. It's not the same as um, with non-government schools where they can pick and choose who comes to them. So all the rabble-rousers, they don't go there. Mm-hmm. They don't have to deal with the challenging kids and they don't have to deal with the kids with disabilities or anything like that. They don't have to make reasonable adjustments out of no money. Um, they have all this money to spend on their stadiums and on their music programs and all this fluff in my view. And that's fine, but don't take government money doing that because you're an exclusive school. Mm. It's like exclusive. Firstly, you need to be of a particular aptitude to attend most of those schools or a religious denomination. And secondly, your parents need to be able to afford that amount. It just... It baffles me. And, you know, we were talking about PCW closing the other week, Mm -hmm. your old school. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really struck me about that closure was that how much they were charging people. Yeah. Up until the point of their closure. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, so Presentation College Windsor is a Catholic girls' school. And when I attended school the yearly fees were somewhere in the vicinity of two to $2,500, which is actually on the lower end for an independent school. Um, and it's affordable and it means you can capture, um, you know, a really broad cross-section of the community. That's right. Like we had people that lived in your upmarket suburbs like Brighton mm-hmm. and Hampton um, but we also had people that lived in public housing in Paran and um, Windsor. So, um, yeah, and we were all the more richer for it. Um, well, let's not forget where the school is situated. It's literally situated on Dandenong Road on the Windsor end of mm. um, 
like St Kilda Windsor. Mm -hmm. And so it was in a really unique position, I think, to capture any Catholics that were in that area, but also students who were from the Paran um, Housing Commission flats. And I think they got... I don't know, and obviously I'm not a business person, but they got greedy and they didn't know who they were, what audience they were capturing because, mm-hmm. you know, there was Paran High School opening up down the road, which is a beautiful school, and you've got Albert Park College, you've also got Richmond High School. So in terms of the government alternatives, they were all there. Yeah. And um, on the other hand, you've got uh, St. Michael's Grammar just down the road, you've got a number of other, like Loretto, you've got mm-hmm. Scotch and, you know, other schools. So they didn't really know what they were capturing in terms of, like, I just... It was basically, and this is just my personal view, but <laughs> it was more or less trying to imitate a private school without, without the actual, one. yeah, resources to be one. Um, it was... It was trying to be something it wasn't. Yeah, it, it struck me as a really confused teenager, like wanting to be really popular and like yeah. everyone come join my group, but really um, didn't know what it was. Yeah. Well, between when I started attending there, um, when the school fees were around that 2000 to $2,500 mark to now, um, the fees have gone up to like somewhere in the vicinity of like I think fifteen thousand dollars. Oh no, not fifteen, ten thousand dollars. Sorry, but that's not reachable. Like no, my parents wouldn't have been able. To, my cousin who went with you, she mm-hmm. wouldn't. Have, I don't think that was affordable. Yeah, it it really made me sad actually because it made me realize like people that people like you, I would have, have never had gone. An education, well, there anyway. I'm sure you would have strived anywhere you went. But you know, and at the risk of being a little bit arrogant, um, I was definitely one of the more high achieving students at that school school even though I was from a relatively disadvantaged background and everyone misses out in that situation the student misses out on the opportunities that the school provides the school misses out on the you know um, great results that the student can um, help in like advancing the overall reputation of that school exactly makes Um, no sense yeah it, it was sad and this is why I don't get this whole debate that we're having here which is Every child is entitled to have the best education. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like that's one of those key tenets of Australian, you know, egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And so this funding disparity, this disparity is really um, a sad indictment on where we're heading. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess one final point I want to make is that um, in terms of funding, like federal funds, um, these independent schools a lot more than the states. And that's because, again, Mm -hmm. due to... uh, federalism um the states predominantly fund their government schools but you know a lot of that funding trickles down from the federal it's a really complex system and so why is it the case that the majority of funding for public schools comes from the state government whereas there's still a large chunk of commonwealth government funds that go to independent and private schools. I would have thought those funds would be going to your public slash government schools. No, I think it's because that's the way it's been separated because I remember being a very angry um, year eight. When was Mark Latham around? <laughs> oh, God, who even knows? No, no. <laughs> a but, lifetime ago. Okay, so the reason I say this is because when I was, whenever that was, mm-hmm. really, really pro his freezing government school uh, – sorry – 
independent school funding. Mm-hmm. He had a whole, like, a hit list. Mm-hmm. And he was going to freeze all the funding to, like, Scotch and all these really big schools and stuff like that. That was his program. Oh. And I think I wrote to the Herald Sun and I was like, this is so good. <laughs> like, you know, love Mark Latham. <laughs> Famous last words, Anna. Famous last words. But that's the only reason why I know about this is because um, I learned about it from a really young age that the federal government they just fund it that's just the way it's been separated out um and it's a really complex funding system but and you can see there they're talking about capital funding yeah this was all brand new information to me by the way like this distinction between capital funding and recurrent funding so capital funding as the name suggests is for capital Capital, projects whereas recurrent funding is um funding that's allocated to the ongoing costs of actually running a school but it says here that so private schools have two public sources of capital funding, yeah. the Commonwealth Parents. and the states. Oh, yeah. the states fund it a little bit. I yeah. think it's a little less, well, not a little, less than I mean, I would hope so. the federal funds. But it says public schools can only receive capital funding from state governments. Like mm. that just seems blatantly absurd to me. Yeah. That you've got public schools where, you know, the carpets are rolled, the um, windows are broken, and I mean, they can only get money from the state government, yeah. whereas then you've got, like, yes. And voluntary contributions that often parents won't pay that because you're entitled to a free education. So what's a voluntary contribution? Like, you can voluntarily pay $400 a year. To your local school. public school? Yeah. Oh, right. I used to force okay. my parents to pay that, even though they probably couldn't afford it. Right. Interesting. But that's their only sources of revenue, and it's really fraught, and I know that they're um, – yeah, it's super duper fraught because the 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 key tenets of like our act, our education and training reform act, is that it's supposed to be free mm. and it's supposed to be open and non exclusive. That's the tenets mm. of public education in Victoria, and so I don't know, like the funding stuff, it really pisses me off and gets me arced up, and I don't know what can be done about it. And you know, to be honest, when I was reading this article, I started finding myself becoming more and more radical and thinking, why do we even have this two-tier system or three-tier system as it is? Like, why do we even have public schools, private schools and independent schools? Why can't we just have this singular system? Well, that's very Jane Carrow-esque. She oh, was really? like, take all <laughs> <love> the funding <laughs> and just make every single public school a premier public school. Yeah. Absolutely, and then, and then everyone great. sends their child to their local neighbourhood public school. Exactly, because then we avoid these issues about like behaviour mm-hmm. and having kids. Because I remember being in year ten, and the dregs from Crawford Grammar would be, um, you know, shipped to us, and we have to deal with their behavioural problems. Mm-hmm. We have to deal with their drug problems mm-hmm. because they're entitled to attend a school. Mm-hmm. They're in year ten. <laughs> it's too early to kick them out of the education system. Nor should they be kicked out because, you know, they're children. But it means that the students who are at that school, in my school at the time, we had to suffer because all Mm. the resources were being diverted with dealing with the dregs from another school. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And they can pick and choose. Whereas, like, I know, I really know now that you can't just expel a child. There's legal mechanisms that have to go through, Mm -hmm. um, that principals need to go through in order to expel a child. Mm -hmm. And it's not a matter of, like, in a public school, uh, in an independent school where you can just ask them to leave. Mm -hmm. That's not lawful and it can be challenged. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it really shits me that um, public schools have to make do with so little funding. 
Um, but I think one positive thing to, to, to leave off on is that one of the teachers quoted in that ABC News article, um, and it's a great one, would highly recommend everyone read it. Um, it's called Rich School, Poor School, Australians and the Great Education Divide. Um, but she said, look, we may not have the facilities, but we offer a quality education irrespective. And I guess that's the thing. Mm. The quality of teachers is still going to be pretty much the same. And I think... Um, what makes you say that? Because some teachers are really passionate and they are driven to go to work at particular schools mm. and they make do. I mean, I'm not saying this is right across the board, but even at um, some of the disadvantaged <coughs> schools you'll find there are these, um, you know, really passionate and driven mm. people. And so I don't think it's fair to say it's a bad indictment of the teachers there. It is. Oh, no, a- a- absolutely. Um, I agree with that completely. But, you know... <laughs> You often make mention of the fact that when you were sitting your exams, you were having to sit them in rooms that weren't air conditioned, for example. So I feel like money doesn't translate to the quality of education. Like there isn't like this causation, but there's a correlation at the very least. Absolutely. And I I think if you have the right basic um, environment, that's how students can excel. Mm -hmm. But I think um, there's also, and you know, there's no excusing the funding kerfuffle at the moment. But if you've got excellent students, you've got excellent teachers, they can still thrive. Mm. It's just harder. And so why are you putting in these barriers at that very early mm. point when there are kids who are striving to make themselves to be something um, if they don't need to be? If we could just invest in good, like, air conditions, like basic mm-hmm. things like toilets, air conditioners, carpets, things like that, that, like you say, make it a more comfortable experience and make it more conducive to success mm-hmm. um, rather than getting students to really push through. Like I feel like a lot of my education was trying to um, swim the tide of adversity and there mm. were lots of things that kept being hard and hard and hard. And if I wasn't a more determined student, mm. I wouldn't have gotten out at the end mm. um, in a relatively successful position. And that's a lot of pressure for you to assume as a student. It is. And it's not. I'm not saying it's right. So, you know, I, I don't want any other students to go through what I have to go through. Mm. Um, but I guess my message is that the teachers are still excellent. Mm. They're still deeply passionate and committed. I've got teachers who um, friends who are teachers and teach in regional schools and they get to town at like seven o'clock to go to Woolies and buy um, treats and to buy things mm. to try and get these kids to actually, you know, um, work. And mm. it, it's, it's different. Like, Comparing what goes down the road at Crawford Grammar to <laughs> what goes down in Warrigal is very different. Mm. Um, and for her, it means she has to put more time and energy into making creative lesson plans because a lot of her students can't read. And so she can't just – and they're year nine, by the way. Mm. And so she can't just sit them in front of their textbooks and get them to read out aloud. She actually has to make them interactive in order to get them to the basic level of comprehension of what she's trying to teach. And so um, – that's a snapshot of the level of teaching that's going on in these places, mm. despite the lack of facilities and the lack of support, I suppose, from parents who are a vital source of support for these independent schools, mm. um, notwithstanding the fact that they give them tens of thousands of dollars every year, but that, you know, familial support to um, bolster the authority of the school and, you know, to get their kids to listen to the teachers and that type of stuff is yeah, it's so complex and I could go on about this for years. Well, the underlying like motto for me out of reading this article was that 
send your child to their local neighborhood public school. (laughs) If I ever have a child, they will be going there. Because I feel like, you know, if more and more parents keep sending their children to independent and private schools, that's almost more of an argument for government to allocate more funds to those schools. But if we as a collective make a decision that actually, no, like we are able and willing to prioritise our public slash government schools, then hopefully politicians will take the lead and do the same. Well, that's why I'm not awfully upset that PCW is closed. Oh, me too. I mean, I think I feel sad for you because it's your old school, but on a philosophical level, I'm just like, well, damn straight. Yeah, absolutely. It's exclusive on many terms. And now that you're telling me about the fees, so it's mm-hmm. exclusive on terms of sex, mm-hmm. it's exclusive in terms of religion, and it's exclusive in terms of money. Mm-hmm. Like, like, uh, duh, you just kind of walked yourself into that. And also people are turning away from Catholic schools now, so. Yeah, no. I mean, I think I'll piss off some people for saying this, but I was kind of like. Not Catholic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a lot of very happy memories of that school. I had incredible teachers. I made incredible friends. But that is not the school that I went to. Like like I said, my parents could not send me to that school in 2019 and I think that's an indictment on the direction that the school's taken. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on a very impassioned, <laughs> potentially controversial episode <laughs> of uh, our podcast. Don't get fired, Anna. <laughs> okay. Famous last words. Famous last words. <laughs> um, we'll see you guys all next time. See you.